Hi everyone, this is Ainsley Hooper from Ainsley Hooper Chats With. This week I've got a special episode which I'll be doing over two parts. It's with Ruby Susan Mountford who will introduce herself and please enjoy. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Ainsley Hooper Chats With, a podcast about people with disabilities just to provide everyone with a, an insight into the real lives of people with disabilities. And this week I have with me Ruby Susan Mountford. Ruby, would you please, thank you for coming on, first of all, and would you please introduce yourself? Of course. Firstly, thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting. My name is Ruby. I use they, them pronouns, and I work in community development, specifically around LGBTIQA plus disability communities. Uh, I've been involved in a number of projects. It's, it's a pretty new area, but in the last few years, or at least, no, let me check. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's not a new area. It's actually, we've had groups in LGBTI disabilities since the 70s, as the Gay and Lesbian Archives has found documentation of. However, in the last few years, there's been a number of state and government, federal government sponsored projects that have been propping up. And I've got had the great honor of being a part of some of them, uh, including some research projects, one done by Deakin University and Pride Foundation Australia called Ticking the Box about the lived experiences of LGBTI people with disabilities. I also work in disability inclusion at LGBTIQ organizations. And I work uh, in LGBTIQ inclusion with uh, Autism Spectrum Australia. Uh, and other autistic uh, outreach programs in that space. Um, I also do a bisexual uh, podcast and radio show called Triple Bypass on Joy 94.9, it's the LGBTIQ community radio station here in Australia. And I'm an administrator on the Bypass Community Melbourne uh, Facebook group. And I also currently serve as Vice President of Melbourne Bisexual Network, which is a uh, little incorporated grassroots organization that does uh, advocacy around by a multi-gender attraction and our mental health. Wow. Also, I play Dungeons and Dragons a lot. <laughs> ah, nice, nice. Oh, wow, that's so much going on. Um, yes. You and I were talking earlier about um, things that you've been doing in the, in the research space. Um, mm. which, uh, just tell everyone what you're doing there at the moment because it's such so, so fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's a, so we're wrapping up on a project that for the last year and a bit, uh, Myself and three other LGBTIQ people with lived experiences of disability um, have been working with Dr. Amy O'Shea uh, at Deakin University on a project that is basically looking at gathering qualitative data, so like personal experience of LGBTIQ people living with disability. And so we designed and held focus groups uh, in Metro Melbourne and in regional spaces in Bendigo. And basically the idea for this project was to look at the data we gathered, which was around what our experiences are and where the barriers we, the patterns that we're seeing insofar as our access of services, our feelings of inclusion and isolation. We have a lot more feelings of isolation than inclusion Mm -hmm. most of the time, unfortunately. Um, But it also was, I think, a chance to look at the importance of, of doing research and academic research in these areas in a way that is very heavily inclusive of people with lived experience of what you're studying. And um, there's a it's a pretty tumultuous history with the medical uh, and academic fields and disability. Mm. And so I think um, often it can be very othering and objectifying of the people that are being studied. And so I think being part of uh, this project where they were very much conscious of needing to have people with disabilities involved in all levels of the research design, in the project rollout, um, and in the write-ups thereafter, I think was a... It's that step of really acknowledging the need to be including the communities that you're in, like you're trying to 
conduct research on mm -hmm. from the very earliest stages to make sure that your own subconscious biases and the blank, the blind spots that can occur. Ironically, that's not the right term for it, is it? The spots that, you know, um, the places that academia still hasn't quite recognized that they are not necessarily being, that their objectivity is discriminating mm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, so, but there, and also, there's also been some other projects happening in that space. I know that Pride Foundation is looking to release uh, a survey they've done across Victoria that had like hundreds of, uh, like hundreds of people participating, which is great because we often, uh, and that was around self-advocacy. So LGBTIQ people uh, with disabilities, their connection to community, Again, like uh, if they have an NDIS plan, if they if their NDIS providers have ever given them any information about being an LGBTIQ person with disability, they haven't. It's never given, um, mm. and stuff like and uh, stuff like that. So I think it's it's a lot of information is being gathered in this space because I think as people are starting to become more aware of this intersection, uh, which is a really big taboo area because people don't like to imagine people with disabilities having sex at all. Uh, let alone having gay sex right like it's a whole it's a whole thing mm. um and so uh we're basically just trying to gather information now so we can better understand the things that we need to shore up and build a more resilient and and healthy and happy and connected uh, community within the lgbtiq disability space but i think that's leading to a greater understanding across the disability sector in australia particularly a lot of the sector that is not necessarily driven by people with disabilities in decision-making roles, mm. that people with disabilities are not all, um, we, we have like intersections outside yes. of just being a disabled person, which often mm. I think is, a, you know, uh, means a white guy who's straight. So I think it's been interesting to recognise and to see industries very frantically realise just how far behind they are in understanding our basic individuality but mm, on the other mm. hand they are moving quickly to try and remedy that some moving more quickly than others in fact to say they're all moving quickly was a lie i apologize this morning. i didn't mean to lie to you by it some of them are moving quickly some of them are moving very very slowly but uh that's uh, i think what the work's about yeah yeah uh, you you've um you've raised some really interesting points there like it's just a, a couple of things i've been thinking of um in, re in regards to like yeah disability and sex um mm. I read an article the other day and it just it, it, it just sort of struck me so it was an article about a woman who is in her 40s and doesn't have have children and she's you know so sick of um so sick of people asking her when are you going to have children and and I thought to myself, like I'm looking at all these comments, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm, I'm in my forties, I don't have kids, and I do not get asked that question at all. I've never been asked that question. When are you going to have kids? It's like it's always just assumed that you know that you wouldn't, that, would you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, it's like yeah. I've even had like carers. Um, <laughs> I've had a couple of times where I've had carers talk about um, getting pregnant and stuff, and one looked at me and she goes, "Oh, I'm so sorry," and I'm like, "Why?" She goes, "Oh, because she can't have kids." And I said, "Excuse me," and I said, "I just don't want them," you know. So it's just it's it's an interesting space like that. It's it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? Because I think, like, there's a few things, there's a few factors that can happen there. Like, there is a under, like, I suppose I need to put out like a big content warning. Like, I, I suppose in discussing the ways that in like ableism works in society and how yeah. insidious it can be can be quite triggering. So I just want to kind of put our heads out there. But the fact is, I think the majority of people still assume it'd be better if we weren't born. 
And so mm. therefore the idea that people like us would continue to give birth to children that might be like us is just not conceivable because wouldn't we, why would we want to risk that? Mm. Because our lives are so miserable, right? Like um, <laughs> that sense of, you know, yeah. Um, and so I think there's that, does that still really, and also like, I think the idea of, I think in some states, I'm not sure exactly, but I know that people with intellectual disabilities can't have kids in some states. Um, wow. It's just like, a, I think, or at least uh, can't get married. I think there's, I need to look into that a bit more closely, but I know that there's a lot of, like I, I have a condition uh, that makes it quite hard for me to be able to, to get pregnant should I wish to. Um, mm-hmm. But for a long time, I thought that was okay because I still had in my head that it would not be a good thing to have an autistic kid. Right. And, um, and, I, and that was like when I kind of recognized those dots of like, oh, I, I, I still internalize these messages that basically say it's probably best if I didn't. I wasn't like this yeah, um, yeah and I think that led to a lot of kind of very intense like unpacking of how internalized these kind of internalized fears and 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 um and and erasure really happens and I think in some ways because I was part of the LGBTIQA plus community before I knew I was autistic and before mm. I was diagnosed as autistic and, and diagnosed with ADHD um I already started to have to work quite hard on recognizing how internalized biphobia influenced me and how internalized homophobia influenced me and how internalized transphobia influenced me. And it actually gave me a framework to really tackle and understand internalized ableism in that way, which was that we live, we go through periods of denial, we go through periods of self-pity, um, but like honestly, and that's all still living in that place where we're kind of being dominated by the by the ableism. And to transcend it or to move to battle it is to is to have self-love and self-care, to give ourselves the breaks that we need, to ask for the things that we need and to know that it's okay to ask for, but mm-hmm. also to support each other and to be able to reach out to each other and, and offer support. And finally, transcending internalised phobias and internalised ableism, that's celebration and pride, so finding ways to celebrate ourselves and take pride in ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think um, having that framework there helped that once I could recognise that I obviously was still having a lot of misgivings about the difficulties I had grown up with as an as a person who was not diagnosed but was autistic my whole life, um, and just the difficulties I know that the world still places for people like us and uh, which don't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it it just it helped me a lot to understand why I felt that way and why and what I should be looking to feel instead. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think. Uh, pride as a battle it's much like I think you know it's like hope hope is an active verb you have to be actively hoping you can't just hold it and wait for it to kind of visit you when when it's ready but um Mm. I think it's the same with disability pride and disability celebration it's something that you we have to actively decide to do in spite of everything else that we're being told Mm. Um, and I think that's that was a really powerful thing for me and I'm really thankful that I could find that and connect those experiences of being a, a bisexual person and being an unbinary person and finding ways to celebrate something that the world again was just really unsure about like can you just make up your mind and just pick something <laughs> um yeah like, uh, <laughs> so I think having to find a sense a sure sense of self and a sense a very strong sense of identity and celebration in spite of everybody put me in very good stead to be able to reuse those skills and reassemble the toolkit to make it work for my journey for disability prior mm-hmm. as well yeah yeah I just think, thinking about like, um, as you said, like all the, the, these labels and changing and things like that, um, in your experience, um, okay, so a little bit of a backtracker, I studied um, 
um, anthropology undergrad and, and I've gone on to do my honours and stuff anyway. Um, one of the fascinating parts of the, that I've studied was um, Ian Hacking and he wrote about making up people and it was about labels and how people, once labels start to be, so once a, okay, so once a label is out there, more and more and more people sort of pop up in those like labels. So, do you, did you find like? I guess what I'm trying to, trying to get at is like so did, did these labels now that they're existing. Did they then it just help you to? Yes. Yeah. So you're already yeah yeah. You, yeah, you understand no, I, what I'm trying to say, right? I know. I, yeah. so, so it's the idea of like how having the word for an experience and seeing people use that word for their experiences makes it much easier to relate that experience and that word to yourself. Mm, yeah. Kind of. yeah, yeah, for sure. I yeah. think um, I absolutely agree. And I think um, I've seen even in the last few years the big attitude changes happening in some spaces around neurodiversity and yes. that language being used. And mm. uh, and like I when I when I was told I was autistic like five years ago, it was devastating. Like I was quite devastated. I, I felt deeply ashamed. Like mm. I had just been told I am, um, despite all my efforts, I was still very weird. It was a good sort of, I felt like I was being told. And um, I feel very differently now, but I have friends who recently found out they're autistic or have sorted out and have been searching for it and it's euphoric. Yeah. And, uh, and because it helps them understand their experiences and they feel like this is something that they can be proud of and that, you know, explains a lot to them and also makes them feel less alone. Mm. And I think that's something as well, because when you have a, when that label is something that you see a crowd of people together in and they all look happy, it doesn't mm. feel as scary when you're told you belong there too. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 And I, but I also think in that way, labels are kind of, uh, labels are like cats, right? If you try and put a cat in a box, mm -hmm. uh, it hates it. Yeah. But if you put a cat in a room full of boxes, it's going to find the ones that fit right. So no, the labels are the boxes and we're the cats. The yeah. point is, labels are great when we get to choose them. Uh, labels can be very intense when they're pushed onto us. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Which is another thing. But I think as well, I've seen, interestingly, the, there's a lot of discussion happening around who can call themselves disabled. And like my choice yes. to call myself a disabled person is something that I chose, again, I think because of my history of LGBTIQ stuff, that awareness of choosing to take on a title or take on an identity is a very political choice, I think. Mm -hmm. It's like coming out and being like, oh, I'm bisexual. I'm mm -hmm. not, you know, I want everyone to know that's important. Or I know I'm definitely I'm non-binary. That's what I am. Um, and I'm not going to kind of let that be vague. I'm going to be very specific. Mm -hmm. And I think often... I first realized I didn't want to consider myself to be disabled because a lot of people were trying to find ways to separate myself from what I saw as a very like hor like terrifying thing because mm -hmm. I had not had a lot, a lot of exposure to people with disabilities. Yes. I just had I had what the media told me, which is that sad, real sad, just always sad, and sometimes mm -hmm. they can buy milk for themselves. Incredible, mm -hmm. um, you know. And just uh, when I think back on that, just the inner cringe and frustration I feel. But I think um, by choosing to say, no, no, well, I have these conditions that uh, and differences that are definitely not accept, like, accepted by society and that definitely create a lot of shit in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and as much as, and like, a, and I feel that that gives me a connection and a sense of community with people who have different, different, um, um, different backgrounds in that space and people with, with hearing impairment or depth and like vision impairment, like, and uh, people who use mobility aids, like it's, 
it's a, we all have like disability. It's different, but we are we're all different in different ways. But we all have the mm. same experience of being different in that way. So mm. it's um, and it also gives me a sense of purpose in knowing that, like the the history of, the, of disability activism is is incredible. It's yeah. honestly uh, what our communities have done, uh, and how we have managed, how far people have managed to get us to go. Mm. Uh, it's 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 awe inspiring, and as much as inspiration can be a bit of a weird word for us. Oh uh, yeah, uh, inspiration. <laughs> well exactly but like it's that sense of when it's our own communities mm. like basically and again like that same that similar experience of looking and reading into you know lgbtiq history and just knowing that everything i can enjoy as someone who can be proudly out and open and obnoxiously bisexual at times mm. um which usually just means being awkward around everyone of every gender <laughs> um yeah. but also doing um but wearing a cool jacket while i do it um, <laughs> <laughs> that that's the whole bike that's by culture baby um but yeah it's it, it gives me a lot of uh, pride in that sense but I also know people who live with chronic pain who don't want to call themselves disabled often because mm-hmm. they are scared of they feel like it takes away from other people's experiences and mm-hmm. I think that's still a problem where there's still a, a perception rightly so that there is a very limited amount of sympathy for people with disabilities and that anyone else choosing to take on that title might be taking away from that very finite <laughs> you know pie mm. of sympathy mm. well I think what I believe is that the more people we the more we can get that sense of a lot of us have to live with things that are disabling yes and that the more of us yeah. who are open and feel confident to express that mm. the more it will be taken seriously um mm. because much like we've seen in the pandemic like a lot of the changes that have been made to flexible working to working from home mm-hmm. to video conferencing to holding on online events have been things that people with disabilities have been asking for and are, and trying to organise for a very, very long time. And so uh, all it took was the majority needing it. And I think it's that sense of if there's enough people who are kind of, if, it's, if it becomes that everyone knows somebody with disability who has had to work through something, I just, maybe, and maybe that's naive of me, but I do believe that like uh, the more of us that are op- happy to openly talk about being a person with disability yeah. and really make people understand that their perception of it is wrong and that they have to widen what they believe a disability is. Yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, I think the better and uh, mm. and the more we'll have the chance to be able to be seen as people first and explain our own situation than have people make a lot of assumptions about what we can and specifically about what we cannot do. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that because... And, um, because for me, and I've, I've talked about this a lot, it, it, it's, a, it's this part of it's been a new thing for me. So even though I was born with a disability, um, yet because of the whole medical model of, of disability, I, I was very much, even though I've been in a wheelchair all my life and it's blatantly obvious that I've got a disability if you see my wheelchair, I hated that label of being disabled, like just absolutely hate it because I didn't want to be put in that box but when I look back at it I was I was still regardless of whether or not I liked it I was still being put in that box and so so certain things happened that directed my life in a particular way up until now and so it's only been and so yeah the whole oh what what you know people go oh why don't you do this you know and it's like they were basically saying, well, why don't you do this just because it had a label of disability uh, or disabled? And I'm like, I don't want to do that. You know, just because I have a disability doesn't mean I should have to do, want to have to do that kind of thing. And it's only been since I've really understood, like, 
begun to know the social model of disability um and it's not me that has the disability but it's the society that's yeah causing the things with my condition to be disabling that totally just yeah it was a huge mind shift for me yeah like it just I, I can't like I just think that that theory becoming prominent like mm. because that's the thing with the medical model right it's that disabled in a lot of ways implies a lot of fault mm. you're disabled yes you know uh and it, it, the medical model by its nature focuses on all the things that are wrong with mm. us or at least that you know that don't match what people expect mm. and i know that that's you know uh and i think it's the same with you know we talked about the neurodiv- when i discovered the neurodiversity paradigm theory you know mm. that it would make sense for much like we have biodiversity, it would make sense that human beings would evolve with a certain levels of neurodiversity as a mm-hmm. naturally occurring thing. Yeah. So saying, you know, things like ADHD and and even things like, you know, borderline personality disorder and and um and bipolar and, and ADHD and, and as well as autism, they're all they're all actually like they they are parts of just human fluctuation. Mm-hmm. And that can be very difficult because they are not the main part of fluctuation. And mm-hmm. so it's not things that built. So I, I agree. I think finding out about this model that said it's not like what is disability? Disability is living with things that general society is not adjusted for. Mm. You know, that's, yes, yeah. that's really what disability is. And, and um yeah. yeah. I was I was absolutely gobsmacked when when and it's it's weird, like you know, people um who don't have a disability probably think to think that you know we should have already known this but it's just because we've been to uh, for me oh because they know it yeah they yeah yeah, much. yeah and it's for me like I mean for me it's like um I'm trying to think of how to word it but yeah basically all, all up until the whole notion of the social um model of disability it's been like okay so because of your disability you're not going to be able to do this so therefore you're going to have to do this so it's all been about directing me in a particular way to to get around the world as opposed to okay what do we need to change out there or you know what would make your life easier yeah exactly right and for some reason that was never like yeah I I mean it's Sounds it's it's it, it's it's it sounds strange now, doesn't it? And I it I does. It, just, it is because like it's difficult because I think the issue is that because a lot of these institutions and theories did come without much input from people with disabilities. Mm. Um, and also, I think there was just that sense of wouldn't we want to be like everybody else if we could be? Mm. And if we can't be, and like I think this also goes back to like you know in the US and the UK and even in Australia, you know that we had these things like the anti anti um anti-begging laws which basically was specifically to stop people with, with disabilities from being seen in public right so, you know like um uh, and they they continued in some states in the u.s to the 70s and i yeah. think so people got very used to us just not being there and they yes. just assumed that we wouldn't want to be because we wouldn't want to be reminded of all the things we can't have as opposed mm-hmm. to well, why couldn't we have these things but i think that it's still taking such a long time for people to have recognized how to do things like in like supported decision making and how to give us the agency to show what we're capable of. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Without us having to be exceptional to be treated like mediocre. You know, at the moment it still does take people with disabilities working exceptionally hard for recognition. And I think um 
Like, you know, I think that's, that's also, you know, the big sense of privilege is like who gets to be mediocre and still be okay. Mm. And, um, and uh, it's, it's difficult. But I think the social model also, I know that it's, I think, helped make the topic a lot different, but also help people take action because mm. the, the, the medical model was also in some ways, it felt like it was kind of like a pseudo-religious model as well because people want to believe in like a just world where things are like done fairly mm. and disability doesn't really work with that. So there's no. a sense of like, well, if you're disabled, then something must be wrong with you or your family mm. maybe. Um, so you should take care of that yourself. That shouldn't be our problem. Yeah. Um, and if you're like, what do we yeah. need to do to make you, um, yeah, it's all about treating you as opposed to, well, yeah, treating the individual yeah, yeah. as opposed to treating the, the systemic and yeah, societal problems that. Exactly. Yeah, and, like, yeah. and so as a result, and I think, you know, as we know, that's interventionalist. And as we know from like, it's a very colonialist way to look at things, <laughs> to assume that without understanding or living with the people you're working in that your way is automatically going to be better by theirs just from the fact that it's your way yes and that theirs doesn't work and I mm. think it uh it doesn't work it is it entrenches feelings of helplessness and isolation and marginalization it is patronizing as all heck mm-hmm. I have a lot of feelings about it um and I honestly do think in in countries like Australia which was really founded on deciding that some people were more people than other people it's hard to un- like it's so deeply entrenched to mm. have a hierarchy of who's human like you know in this country uh it's what we were founded on like we were founded <laughs> on uh, on deciding that everyone who'd already lived here wasn't actually a real person mm. and i think that kind of mentality shows that humans find it you know humans do other each other and you mm. know in some ways as though like you know as someone who has an invisible disability there's that flip side of people just not believing me or really not taking accommodation needs very seriously because they they are coding me as someone like them first. Mm-hmm. And so they but when I ask for things that they don't need themselves, there's a sense of like, well, you don't actually need that because I don't need that and you look like me. Yes. Um, and I think that's always been an interesting thing as well because it's a privilege in a lot of ways to not have to counteract the way people will instantly assume I'm less capable if I attach autistic to my name, which I make a point of doing. My resume makes it very clear I am professionally autistic in some ways. Mm. Um, you know, but it does mean that I go in there knowing that I will be, like I, if uh, that it will reset expectations if that's on the table. Mm. Um, all that as well that I, because I don't, I, because I don't have a visible disability, I can kind of use that to infiltrate, which is hard. But it's like all that sense of if I can get through a crack in the door, I can then throw the door open and everyone mm-hmm. else can come in. But it also, it is, it's difficult because it's not picked up on. And so, you know, for the first 25 years of my life, I just had that sense that there was no, and it, it was similar to the medical model in that way, there was no one to blame for things going wrong with myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. a lot of feelings of just worthlessness and, and just fear. And like, because I just couldn't, it wasn't working and I could understand why things didn't work, why I couldn't make friends without it being this huge effort, mm. why I got so overwhelmed, why I was so sensitive um, and all these words that were really negative. Mm. Um, and so I just had a very negative opinions about myself. Mm. I start to work on those having them because it still kind of pops up in my head a lot. And it's a really common thing. Yeah. Particularly uh, because invisible social disabilities really come at that point of like just being an outcast, like being alone in a crowded room, I think is the best way to look at undiagnosed autism. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, 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 it's lonely. It's really yeah. lonely. And, um, 
And I think that being just, I think social media has done a lot for disability in general, because I think being a disabled person has been very lonely for a very, very long time. Mm, um, yeah. Because we're not, we're not deemed fit for public view. Uh, mm. Or if we are, it's in a very specific way where it's to try and make other people, people who are able-bodied and neurotypical, feel better about themselves or feel motivated to do something. Because if yeah. women can do it, they can definitely do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, it's, uh, which is always really wild to me, that sense of like, well, if, if we can, if, like, if someone with disability can do it, what's your excuse? Like, <laughs> yeah, um, and that's always know. made me cringe, like when I've been used, like, yeah, used as an example. And it's just like, oh, my God, why did I fall into a hole? Because I feel so sorry for that person. Well, I, went, yeah. I went to school where we like you know in, in primary school we had a guy who'd been in an accident was in a wheelchair just coming to tell us his life story to kind mm. of like inspire us about overcoming adversity like it's mm. it's quite it's bizarre right like it's that I've never understood it yeah I even like yeah, seeing yeah. it myself I'm just like why am I not and as cheery as that person <laughs> Well, like a part of it's just like it's trying to teach us to have compassion, but the mm. fact that they still do it in this quite othering way of like you know, like here's a compassion fi- a figure for you to kind of you know understand and mm. and work through. It's still I think that's the difference between the the medical model and the charity model, right? Which is like mm. very much the charity model, which is just like oh those poor dears, mm. yeah. oh so sad, you yeah. know, and it's um. And I think that's often where a lot of people can then become stuck with because they don't kind of recognize that uh, um, it, the charity model often still comes with that kind of assumption of like, well, we know, we'll, we'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. It removes a lot of agency. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's, uh, and it's difficult to kind of recognize that it's still very disabling to have yeah. your choices taken away. Um, yeah, it's, 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 fa- it's interesting. I think people... The fact that the social model is being talked about now, like the fact that organizations are starting to take the fact that like almost no one has a disability inclusion policy, you know, like a, that's starting to kind of get picked up on now though. Oh, that is, that's. Uh, yeah. Well, you yeah. work in that space. So you well, that. that's the thing. I So I, um, the space that I work in is, um, about, I've been using that. It's funny. I've been using that hashtag on LinkedIn a lot, diversity, disability and inclusion, but I don't actually work in that space. However, it's only just yeah. become clear to me in the last, I guess, the last month or so that, about that particular space and how lacking it is. I'm like, I was gobsmacked. I thought, well, you know, there's diversity inclusion. So, you know, gender, race, blah, blah. Um, but disability seems to be so yeah. vacant from it. And when I, I, I don't know if you saw, I asked on LinkedIn, why is this? And people said that this, they're scared to actually touch disability. So that to me was just like, wow, I can't believe that we're so far that, yeah, like as you said about the, like the disability rights movement has come so far and yet we're yeah. still so scared. But like the other thing as well, disability action plans, um, I can't believe that those are still not enforced. So what's the point of an organisation having a disability action plan if nothing accountability for it yeah what is that and that's just to me as a person with a disability I find that just uh completely uh I feel really gross when when yeah no I feel gross we we get used and like it's like that sense of kind of like wheeling someone out and being like look how good I am yes yeah it's the charity model and I think yeah I've just one of the projects I had the pleasure of working on which was like a co-design project that was looking at inclusive like how to create inclusive culture 
was specifically talking about like, you know, publish this on your mm. website. People should be able to see what you've promised so they can mm. hold you to your promises. Mm. Because mm. otherwise, who, why are you doing it? Yeah. Like, why are you actually doing this if you don't want it to be done well? Yeah. Um, and I, I think that you mentioned before, so people feeling overwhelmed. I think there is that sense of it can, much like we're just, like, people get overwhelmed by this, oh my God, but there's so much. And it's that sense of like anything, Sure, it's a learning curve, but we've had them before. You know, mm. we continue to have them. We have yeah. training around anti-racist behavior. We have training on like, you know, um, how to be more like culturally sensitive to Aboriginal mm. and Torres Strait Islander people. We yeah. have cultural training about LGBTIQ awareness, mm -hmm. but like people still find like that sense of disability awareness because disability is such a broad area yeah. to be like, um, just, just people still find that, I think also just really confronting because as I was saying before, they're just really used to us not being part of the conversation. Exactly. And, I think, and, that's, and it. that's still, yeah. I think what, I, and that's it, like we are here. So that's, and that's what we're wanting. We're wanting to be included in that. So all people need to do is just actually search for people who are interested in helping you do that work. And when I say helping you do that work, not helping in regards to unpaid gigs because I've seen so many of those, like, but actually, yeah, employing um, or using consultants, um, people with disabilities who are consultants to do that work because, the, like, yeah. I'm just, it's, it's such a, okay. I, I guess, um, for me, um, yeah, I, I just, like, I think of disability awareness training, um, and it, like, yeah, we've had it for so long, but it's just like, I don't know where I'm, I, I'm just, <laughs> well, I, it yeah. makes sense. Like, I think there's a lot of frustration there in that, yes. like, uh, that there's been this kind of, there has been this stuff and people have wanted it, but they haven't even known where to go. But I think that's all just mm. because, you know, a lot of, as someone who was not born and like, you know, who was not like, who was identified with having a disability at birth, mm. and so was not part of the systems that existed around disability, mm. it can be really mind boggling to understand them. And like, you know, I've had friends who only in the last few years through doing work in projects have realized that disability service providers and disability advocacy organizations are totally different. You know, mm -hmm. like, um, yeah. that, and like that, and who, who you'd access about what and for why. Like, mm -hmm. these are, these are all kind of quite, there's not an information book you get of like, so you're disabled. There's some <laughs> stuff you should know. Yes. You know. Here are the laws that protect you. I'm actually, you know, uh, as part of one of our projects at Thorn Harbor, we're trying to make that information. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like a sense of, if you don't know uh, what, you know, it's hard to know where to start. And also for organizations, mm -hmm. like, you know, they, like, I know that they, also, it's kind of like, oh, where do we where do we look for disability access training? And like, is it just we ask somebody that we know to come in and talk to us, or like, do we? Yeah. I, I think there's still that um, and then still like it it still becomes this kind of sense of because for a long time our ability to be part of the workforce has been quite difficult. Mm. Um, there's a lot of barriers in so far as well of like seeing us as being capable of doing like high level training. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and it's it's. I think it's um. It's also interesting just because, uh, there is this new. I think I do think that there is a new push. Like you know, we're seeing things like, you know, I watched the grand final last night. It was a weird experience having it in Brisbane mm. because I'm in Melbourne and we've been in lockdown for over a hundred days and they stole our grand final and it was on at night. And it was weird, but um, they had like the the you know the a lot of the, there was a lot of Oz interpretation during that commentary and stuff like that and. Mm. People have been like, you know, checking out the Oslad interpreters for Dan Andrews's press conference, Premier Dan Andrews. Um, 
And so there's been this kind of like normalizing of it being a expected part of any communication. Yes, and I yeah. Think, yeah. And I think it's that sense of why disability can feel so overwhelming at first because people just have no idea of where to start because they can't imagine how we could fit into the system. Mm-hmm. And and the issue is like the earlier and like they think they have to change all their stuff at the edges. And it's like, well, if you just start earlier mm-hmm. and like from the beginning to see this as part of what you're doing, mm-hmm. uh, it isn't as difficult. It's just that when you have already constructed something that isn't accessible mm-hmm. and then you then try to make it accessible, exactly. you'll have a really rough time because we won't trust it and we won't show up. And then you'll be like, well, no one even cared. And exactly. It was a problem. Mm. It wasn't our fault that you didn't include us from the beginning. Mm. And it's not our fault that we don't appreciate being an afterthought. And if we're not turning up, it's important to ask why we're not there as opposed to assume it's because we've chosen to opt out. We very rarely choose to opt out of things. If we're not Mm. there, it's because something has stopped us from being there. Exactly right. It's like, yeah, when it, it, it perpetuates that idea of, oh, well, we're not seen, so therefore we must stop being interested in, in going in those spaces, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah. uh, like, it was just, it, it had me um, in thinking before talking about the diversity and inclusion side of thing, um, because, like, as I said, like, I didn't realize I knew nothing about the DNI space um, mm-hmm. until, until recently. <clears throat> excuse me um so for me your diversity and inclusion was just a bit about disability being included in a diversity group and sort of like getting that because yeah like we were talking earlier it feels like we're sort of getting more of that conversation going um that whereas yeah it wasn't um seen before um, but yeah, I'm going off track a bit now. I seem to start, start right. to waffle on when I <laughs> when I start to get really uh, like I, I think about certain things and my my, my uh, anger starts to rise a little bit because I just think of like get, I get frustrated because this is the thing. Like as you were saying, you know, on you see on press conferences like the sign language, and so there's all this um, sort of portrayal in the meet like in the media that things are accessible um, or inclusive. Or that, yeah, but yeah. it's kind of like there's this gap that's like you can see it um, on the on your TV, um, but there's a gap between the TV and the – do you think there's yeah, a gap between the quite, TV? Oh, yeah, no, of yeah. course. Like I think um, – and I think as well, like, you know, it's, it's – there's a big gap between what we're still living with for sure. Mm, you know and a big gap around awareness in that space and like you know I think and even in different states insofar as who's doing what in Mm -hmm. these spaces um and I also I was thinking about what you're saying like you know waffling on the other fact is that we I find at least that we really kind of get um a space where we can express anger Mm -hmm. um where it's not potentially risky for us to do so um you know like to actually be able to just sit there and be like can I swear on this oh yeah go ahead it's really fucked yeah you know yeah, it's real yeah, fucked yeah and like um the how to say that to someone who understands exactly yeah what i mean and yeah, agrees is yeah. quite uncommon and often in the work that you do and the work that i do yeah. in like capacity consultations you know sense of being like all right that's great it sounds like you're really learning this mm. is an inc- like you know this is a safe place to learn to mm. ask questions oh you've never heard of that term before no worries and, and him and i just being like 
I know that we're all on a learning journey, but I'm very tired and I've only been doing this for a few years, you know, like I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it, um, and I think there's that sense as well of it's always dangerous to express anger about something that most people in the room are not feeling because they don't, yeah, because yeah. your Sorry, anger just seems like you're being in a, because it just makes your anger seem like you're being irrational or you're being like uh, unreasonable mm-hmm. or you're being too demanding. Mm-hmm. And I think those are all things that like, you know, particularly like the stereotypes around autism and like how we're supposed to respond, like the real impacts of that, like are that a lot of women, like I think they found some studies in the UK show that autistic women were more likely to lose their kids in child support because they were seen as argumentative. You know, a lot of autistic people who are not white don't get labeled as autistic. They get labeled as having oppositional defiance disorder. <laughs> it's basically just the most, a way to say they're being, they're arguing with people that we don't think they should argue with is basically <laughs> what that means. And, um, which is almost everybody if you're a person of color too, let's be honest. Like you're not mm. supposed to argue with anybody. Mm. Um, you're supposed to never be upset or cross, mm. even if there is everything in your life is unfair. Yeah. Um, and I think there's the same sense with disability and it's the same sense with LGBTIQ plus stuff as well, right? Like you can't get angry. Mm. You've got to like police your own tone so much. And I think when we're able just to talk together in spaces, it quickly becomes, it can become very heated just because of how much we are all holding on to. And, yeah. And that self-censure that we have to go through mm. and that kind of careful disclosure and often like emotional regulation, like, you know, checking if we're getting frustrated and pulling ourselves back down or like, you know, if we're feeling tired and want to ask for something, trying to size up if they're likely to see that as us being problematic or us causing a fuss or like not being like tough enough to hack it out like there's all these calculations that we have to do all the time just to make sure that we are not putting people offside and I think um Mm. and I think that often means that we hold on to the rage and the resentment and so it can it can like you know it can come up in that it's unjust you know and they often say like autistic people we talk about like having I feel like injustice as an emotion like you know where it's just kind of like very strong intense like physical response to what I see as un- things that are unjust and unfair mm. and um and I think that tends to when we all get when we can come together and again often it's still we're still really meeting each other through these advocacy spaces right like that's mm. still often a lot of our social networks mm. is advocacy yeah and and um and I think like that's it often means that we do have this kind of top-down understanding of all these barriers but often are facing them alone or explain them to people who don't live with them. So I think having those moments of kind of camaraderie of just like, yeah, it's fucked, mate. It's mm-hmm. fucked. It's just yeah. it's really comforting and really vital, I think, to us. Yeah. I, I love that you've spoken about anger because, like, I guess when I when I go quiet and, and I can't word, word things properly, it's because I had this anger burning inside of me. And there have been times where... <clears throat> You know, I've tried to voice certain things that have been unjust and people are just like, I'll oh, just settle down, you know, it's not that bad. And it's like, excuse yeah. me, like yeah. these. And then I, and, and, and this where is this is where my, my internalised ableism kicks in. Um, they're like, oh, it's not that bad. And so I'm just like, okay, so therefore they must be right because, you know, I've always been the one that's um, asked for special treatment. 
yeah, that how it could feel? Yeah, like, or, I know yeah. that's how it felt for me. I've been the one that's had to ask, like, excuse me, can I have this? Can I have that? And yeah, I guess felt like the uh, imposition. Yes, you know, yeah, yes. In, Feeling yeah. like a burden is the fucking worst thing in the world. Like it, mm-hmm. just, it is, mm-hmm. and I think yeah. it's so hard to explain just how it permeates almost all parts of our lives because mm-hmm. it is what a lot of the time media and messaging will make us feel. Yeah. Like, and this is a whole thing, like, you know, uh, and I can only really speak, again, I can only speak from my own experiences. And like, I, I you mm. know, I do disability advocacy, but I'm an autistic person. So the autistic space is what I know best. Mm. Um, but the issues that we have there and so far as all this messaging that focuses on parents and the cost to parents of being, mm-hmm. you know, of having autistic children um, and all this focus on supporting parents and all these organizations led by parents mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and carers. And it can be that sense of it's much easier for, the average person to relate to the parents because they're not autistic and Mm. so you've managed to find ways of supporting everyone around the autistic person but when it comes to mental health support for a population of people that have shockingly high self-harm and suicide rates Mm. you know our life expectancy is still 55 years you know it's um and often that's because of Mm self-harm and and suicidality and uh, despite this often even the big organizations most of their resources and and everything is putting on to getting us to fit into the workforce. It's not about our mental health. It's not about building, you know, adult support. It's not about what it is like to live our lives. It's about how we can be best fit into what people will observe about us. How do we mm. best, it's very, how do we best, like, you know, uh, get us to, to find a way to work in the system, even mm. if it is really constantly reminding us that we're not right and that we have to keep asking <laughs> and that, um, Mm. And I think like when I, on the other hand, like when I've had experiences where that has gone, when people have asked me or when my friends, like when my friends remembered to bring earplugs and we went out and I'd forgotten mine and they had spare earplugs just in case I needed them. Mm-hmm. Or I went for a job and they were just like, do you have any access requirements? And I was like, yeah, I need this. Like, okay, cool. Here you go. Done. Like those little things make such a difference. Like yeah. when, when you can tell people have recognized that not everyone who applies or walks through their door is going to have the same needs and requirements when you can tell that they've already recognized that they shouldn't make that assumption. Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes a big difference to me. I think if more people can recognize that no one should assume that everyone has the same experience of, mm-hmm. as you or experiences the world the same way as you, mm-hmm. the better. Like just, just if anything can happen, just that one second of just ask, not assuming you know what somebody needs, Mm. not assuming that you know what they need or what they don't need just mm. ask, and, or not and asking them because you don't, you don't you don't impose help you ask it's like you know i've the woman she put like spikes on the handles of her chair she's like stop pushing my chair without <laughs> asking me mm. so she just put spikes on the handles because she was just like i don't need that help that's not asking what i need that's assuming yeah. what i need because you're just like oh person in a wheelchair wow. let me help you you know and she was just like i have agency that's look at these guns i can do it myself it's mm. fine um and I know that you know. For me, it's there's a difference between being patronised and being and being and uh, being supported. There's a big difference in those mm. two things. And mm. uh, and yeah, I've seen more proactive support. And like I I got to do a program with Autism Community Resource Centre, and like you know they sent out all the information to all of us. They like you know they were asking what sh- colour combinations would be best for us to read them through, because you know just dys- uh, dyslexia and different things can work better with different colour combinations. Um, you know, or English Melbourne, like there's a lot of work in creating easy and simple English translations for government, uh, for government uh, sheets and everything. Like uh, Rainbow Rights, like the LGBTIQ peer support group for intellectual disabilities, like uh, their president, Cam Bloomfield, has like been helping them to 
directly translate all the ways that they can communicate the restrictions happening because of the pandemic in ways that are understandable for people with intellectual disabilities. Um, but I think that, that, and that's still a whole other, I'm tangenting a bit now, but I think <laughs> even as we move through with disability access, like the intersections of that, like people are still, we still are very quick to often, I know when I was first, I, I, I felt, when I was first found out, found out I was autistic, there was a big need to separate the idea of being autistic from having an intellectual disability. Right, and I yes. still think that there is a huge lack of agency and visibility for people with intellectual disabilities. And that's still an area where, you know, whenever we assume that, like whenever we talk about someone having like the mind of a six-year-old, whenever we basically find all these ways to say that you have to have a certain IQ to have agency, it's uh, it's deeply dangerous. And I still think that's something that we haven't really reckoned with as a, like even in the, in the disability movement, like we haven't really reckoned with the sex, with the racism that's in our movements, and that we don't like that our disability movement is often really white, or at least mm -hmm. led by white people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, and like, and also the cultural differences in how disability is talked about, understood. Um, I think it's 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 still a big difficulty there. But I know that with intellectual disability specifically, like I still think it's one of those areas where it's for such a it is so ingrained in us to to see and like to see uh, people with intellectual disabilities as being the epitome of of like well surely this is not worth living and mm -hmm. I feel that that is so entrenched and so deep uh, always yeah. it's so hard to to recognize when everything has told you otherwise and I think that's part of it as well but it's so important to recognize that a person can have a good life without needing to achieve what we've decided is what makes you worth having a good life. Mm -hmm. And I think yeah. that's really the best way of putting it, you know, but like uh, if we, you can support, we can, we can be, as long as words like stupid and dumb are seen as like jokes or seen as inherently negative, as long as we do kind of correlate intelligence with worthiness and productivity with worthiness. And all mm -hmm. those things are so, all those things are so aligned. So when we are, a, when the disability movement itself is ableist, against people with intellectual disabilities or against each other, we enforce this idea that, you know, that there will be gatekeeping, that there will be someone deciding who can be supported and who won't be or who shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, um, it's really dangerous, I think, to not really assess that you can have a disability and you can still be an ableist person. You can understand your own access needs but not have any sympathy for other people's. And if you're not really understanding where that defensiveness comes from and where maybe like impatience can come from. Uh, if you're not consciously checking on that, you're still going to be perpetuating everything that we've been told. Like, you know, we should think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it will often come from that place of, well, as long as if I can just hold myself here, as long as I'm not there, I'll be okay. And mm -hmm. it should be that no matter where you are, you're okay. That's the yeah. whole point. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. Uh, yeah. That was a bit rambly, but, you know, you get no. mad your heart. <laughs> There's so many, so many. Oh my god, my brain's going so many points in there that I just absolutely learning. Like, oh man, but like, um, one thing I was thinking of was, um, now just trying to 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 gather it. It was um, in regards to um, yeah, talking about the handbook thing earlier. You know how you were saying about we don't get given a handbook. Um, yeah. It was, it's interesting um, growing up when I was in, say, in primary school, um, mm -hmm. 
of a sort of it was it was kind of like being in that like in the education department at that age and lower you were sort of so I've got the condition spina bifida so I was uh-huh. involved in this spina bifida clinic from from like you know when I was a kid and so basically you'd go to this clinic and you'd have all your supports like you'd go see your doctors um physios and whatever and then once um once you got to high school you sort of that relaxed so then you are basically on your own um and so that idea that we don't grow up is still like so heavy isn't it yeah yeah and so I got to a point um when I was in my 20s and I had a um a, a medical um not a mishap it was a negligence in hospital that resulted in me having an injury which went on for a long time and um for it um, basically resulted with me being in hospital for about a year like on and off for about a year and my doctor who I ended up with he he was a very he's a great guy and like I credit my life to him because I was in such a bad place mentally because of it all um in the end he was basically okay if you're going to go home you're not coming back in this time so we're going to make sure that you got all your all these supports available and so he said to me who's your case manager and I'm just like what's a case manager and I'm like and so I I got I opened up to this world of all this stuff that I didn't even know was available to me like it probably would have made things a bit easier if I'd known about these things earlier on probably right yeah probably and then um... yeah but like I was 27 at the time or around then and when it was introduced to me I was just like I mean okay so now I realize it would have made things a hell of a lot easier back then when those things were introduced to me I was just like don't want to know anything about these supports whatsoever because having those supports meant that I was more disabled and I did not like that idea of being more disabled because I had to have these supports. Do you that, think, yeah, it's and like it's just ourselves by struggling, hey? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, I've, I've lived my life from here to here without these supports. Yeah. Why the hell should I need these supports now? Because of what happened to me wasn't my fault. Um, but, yeah, now I really, like, now I look back because, like, you know, that was like... Mm, about 18 years ago now and I look back and I think well if I'd had those supports all along it would have been a hell of a lot easier but it's just it's just interesting it, isn't it yeah you have that like I know like when I was finally making a few breakthroughs of my mental health and mm-hmm. and like particularly like like my my childhood and my school years which I just really had a lot of blocks about because it had been a re- really really rough time mm-hmm. it was that sense of if I have to acknowledge that it wasn't my fault it means I have to acknowledge that it shouldn't have happened Mm-hmm. and that it was unfair mm-hmm. and I find that that's really hard you know like to acknowledge that you didn't have to have gone through that without support that you should have had support but you didn't yeah yeah that I think that's actually like really hard and in some ways by saying well no if I keep on showing I didn't need them mm-hmm. I I will have justified not ha- that I didn't get them and yeah. I will have like shown that you know um and I think there's that strange sense of it shouldn't have had really accepting that it shouldn't have had to be like that mm-hmm. and that it wasn't fair you know like I like I said before, we all want the world to be just. Yeah. And at least, you know, I, I think I think we uh, we all have different moral codes about it, but I think we all kind of do want to believe that mm, there is yeah. like you know some sense of justice. But um, yeah. 
Yeah. But I think it, it's it's so hard just to accept that, no, it, it's not your fault mm. and it shouldn't have been that hard. Yeah. And, um, and then that's it. And like, mm. and that it is going to be easier now. But yeah. you had to go through a lot that wasn't easy and you shouldn't have had to do that because look at what we can do with that now. Like I, mm. you know, yeah. again, like this is something that we talk about a bit with LGBTIQ stuff. Like as we see things, each generation get a bit easier. Like people I think often will forget that, sure, we can still be just flat out murdered in like 22 countries. Yeah. You know, it's still deeply unsafe. Every In every country in the world does mm. kill people being here. Yeah. Whether or not, like, you know, that, that, that's still where we're at. Um, mm. Whether it's, like, you know, directly or indirectly, we still are kind of a, our existence and whether we should be able to exist without violence is still debated all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and I think if there's, and I think if there's similar stuff with disability, like our existence and if we should exist is always debated um, mm. openly and often without much of our inclusion. Mm. Um, and so I think that as things do get better, there is, like, our experiences are so different that, you know, when I talk to people who, a gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans, intersex mm. who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, mm. their lives have been so different and they were in a lot of ways so much harder. Mm. And so for them to reconcile with how things have improved now, it can be hard because it mm. has to, and to not resent it and to not resent the experience people get to have now. Like, you know, um, as like they're now diagnosing a lot more AFAB and like, you know, assigned female at birth people and girls with autism spectrum disorder much earlier than mm. they. And like, you know, because having said that, I felt like at 25, I missed out on a lot. I know people who got diagnosed in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s, you know. And again, by that point, you're, you've lived your life just assuming that you're the problem mm-hmm. and it's hard <laughs> and it shouldn't have had to be that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so how we kind of come to terms with that. And the first, it's just a matter of letting ourselves grieve for, for it and actually acknowledging that yeah. we were kind of, um, that it wasn't, Actually accepting that it wasn't within our control is very hard mm-hmm. and accepting that. And that's the, the crux of saying it wasn't our fault. It also means it wasn't within our control. Yeah. And I think we really like to believe that somehow it still was due to our own choices or due to things that we did because that's mm-hmm. a bit easier to accept than just that it really yeah. wasn't. And that's yeah. it because, I mean, like I've, um, yeah, I mean, I mean uh, I've got my own business which I uh, I'm like finally doing something I love, um, but like from Ainsley Hooper Consulting. Yes, oh my god, I'm just like <laughs> finally. Um, so because ba- for basically for me it was ba- it was it was like okay, so you've got a disability, um, you're going to do this, you're not, you can't do this, and so I ended up in a in a job that. Um, sorry for any coworker ex coworkers listening to this, but it was a job that. I was not happy with and for 20 years yeah. I, I did that job and and on yeah I thought it was I just thought I thought it was me um just you know and that was yeah. like you know the sucky life that I was going to have just not enjoying it um yeah and now I realize I look back and, and like like finding ableism and realizing what I went through was ableism and it was and and that's like the guilt the guilty part the hard part about that is that the people who um were responsible for um you know directing me on that path they weren't bad people they just yeah. thought that's what that that was the that's what you did that's what the yeah, expectation was 
yeah and so it's hard to go oh my god well like you know because of all that this is what's happened to me um yeah you know but and so yeah so it's like it's hard to talk about it because you don't want to blame people um and I don't blame people it's just that that's what that was you know they didn't know better they they, they made choices with with the information they had yeah that's the issue isn't it because like when ignorance hurts us and it does all the time yeah like it all the time does and I think to that's again it's this extra lump of emotional work we have to do Mm. all the time when people are ignorant around us like when I've been in an uber driver uh and I've been in uber and the driver's been talking about just like talk I mentioned I worked in disability and he just Hard to go off about like is it true that they can have kids i've heard they do sterilization uh oh i heard that you can cure autism with camel milk oh like, me, just, me just sitting in the car just being like oh i can't i mean i don't know what to say at this point because like mm-hmm. i'm i'm part of the group that you're talking about what you're saying is so deeply upsetting mm-hmm. that you also don't know any better you're not a bad guy you just That's have it. no clue what you're talking about yeah and the things coming out of your mouth are just honestly so so wrong and and come from these really harmful places that the fact that you can say all of that without any kind of awareness or intention Mm. and very big surety that I'm going to be on your side with it is is exhausting because I can't respond to you and I think it's exactly like that it's like I don't think he's a bad guy Mm. I just don't think that he knows many people with disabilities (laughs) yeah yeah exactly Um, I think it's it's often like that isn't it because I think I have that sense of once people have be, have been told, then it's their responsibility. But at the moment as well, we don't really have systems that encourage people to do any learning themselves. Like unless like, dis, you know, neurodiversity and disability is still like a specialized unit in a lot of medicine. And so, you know, right. a lot of doctors and psychologists and psychiatrists haven't really had a lot of, like unless they choose to do specialized work, will not get basics on how to provide good health support for people who are neurodiverse, people with disabilities. Like that's not a part of their training. That's disgusting. Anymore. I think it's that it's again, it's that sense of that they they it's that it's that understanding that we are a siloed community and that we only go to very specific spaces, that we don't just occur in the wild. Yeah. Naturally, <laughs> you know, that we that we're only in these very specific spots. Right. And it's that again, it's that sense of disability being so other that the idea that you could just have patients that are have some kind of disability as well as a bunch of other things is just yeah. like not quite part of it. And it's well it's the same with like, you know, LGBTQI stuff. Like, you know, you don't get inclusivity training base as a standard mm. and like you're, they're starting to do better with that but it's not like um it's just that sense of using an intersectional lens is still such a new it's still such a new thing mm. that sense of the multiple identities that we carry will have a direct impact on how we go through the world and how the world responds to us mm-hmm. and that will play on our mental health like the idea of blaming mental health on societal pressure not the person is still a very new thing you know mm. like and it's only when we've got all these studies, like, you know, showing, I think, some of the big first ones were on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders communities. It was showing the ongoing effects of marginalisation on mental health. Mm. Turns out it's not good. It's not mm. good. It's just mm. bad for your brain to make, to make to feel like you're a bad person all the time. Mm. Who could have possibly guessed? But now there's proof, you know. So I think, like, um, the way that that's really seen as is still people don't have to think about disability unless they choose to. Mm. And I think that's. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Angel Hipper Chats with with Ruby Susan Mountford. We've had a great time chatting and the conversation continues next week. So please tune in. And if you've liked this podcast, please share, subscribe and leave a comment 
about what you liked about this particular podcast and what you would like to see in future podcasts. See you next week.